immersive audio podcast in conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is joined by Dave Mallon. Dave played an important role in the history of ambisonics with his work on the FUMAR format, and he was a pioneer in postgraduate music technology in the UK within his role as an experimental officer at the University of York. Today, Oliver and Dave talk via Skype, discussing the advancements of ambisonics in the digital era and Dave's continued passion for sonic arts. Good morning, Dave, and welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm fine. It's a nice day here, not very sunny, but we're going to get out later. I heard a couple of aircraft flying by. What's going on in the sky above you? Well, nothing just at this instant, but we have uh, RAF Linton, which is a training base about uh, seven or eight miles outside York. And at times we have them flying to Carnos while they're learning to fly. And then later on, when they... Uh, need to start converting to jet aircraft, they start flying tornadoes around. And a, a couple flew past about 10 minutes ago, and I'm sure there'll be more around through the day. Uh, I hope you'll be lucky and we'll hear a few more. Anyways, um, let's get started. Dave, you somewhat a bit of a legend uh, when it comes to the world of immersive audio and ambisonics. And why don't you take us back in the day, 70s, I believe. Uh, how did it all begin for you? Where did you get started? Tell us everything. Well, I started even before the 70s. Uh, I think the first audio stuff I did was converting old-fashioned radio sets to be guitar amplifiers for me and my friends trying to play Beatles songs way back in the 60s. But what started me with immersive audio was working in the electronic music industry. Uh, well, it wasn't an industry then. It was I was working with a few composers at uh, University College Cardiff, and uh, we wanted to steer sound around in space. We played around with various things, none of which worked very satisfactorily. Um, and then news started to appear of a new and much better, supposedly, I hadn't heard it, system called Ambisonics, which actually encoded sounds fields and then figured out the best way to replay them over loudspeaker arrays. And that's what got me interested in ambisonics and immersive audio. And I was really convinced when I attended my first AES convention in 1975 in London. And the famous Michael Gerson was there presenting a paper on the now legendary Soundfield microphone, which did just that. That's what really got me into it. It's really interesting. Um, what was your first experience with immersive audio? Well, I think... The problem I'm having is the label immersive audio, because that's quite recent compared to my experience in audio. And I suppose philosophically, really, we're all living in immersive audio, even if there isn't a bit of electronic equipment within a thousand miles, because audio is our only fully three 
dimensional sense. Our eyes, they say they're 3D. What we perceive through them anyway is 3D. But in fact, it's not the case. You think about it. You look forward and you only see a narrow cone in front of you. What? 90, 120 degrees. It depends on your how your eyes are actually positioned. And you have to turn to see anything anywhere else. So it isn't three-dimensional, but our hearing is. It's always three-dimensional. And that dates way back. In fact, probably before we were human even. You need to know whether the saber-toothed tiger is behind you or in front of you or to your side, even if you can't see it. And that's only done through your hearing. So my first immersive audio experience what really set me off in this field was simply being alive. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. And the immersive audio term is fairly recent buzzword, isn't it? And it's probably was rejuvenated since the advent of a new wave of VR and uh, shall we say uh, third generation uh, of VR. Or some people might argue it's just still first generation. <laughs> yeah, I could say in, in terms of VR itself, my first real experience with it, with immersive audio, was back in 1993 when I went to a conference called VR93, very imaginative title, and uh, gave a paper on ambisonics there and heard one really impressive demo by the Lake Audio people of uh, a cricket match, I believe, and using head-tracked headphones. And that took some serious hardware in those days, a piece of kit which cost 20, 30,000 pounds to do it for one person. But the a really amazing thing about it was that when they switched the head tracking off to just give you straightforward headphone sound by an oral, the whole illusion of being present in the place disappeared and it reappeared as soon as they turned the head tracking back on. And that was a real revelation. I knew it was important theoretically, but I didn't actually know it was important important until I experienced it myself. Nowadays, have you tried anything from the recent content, something you could compare with and perhaps talk about how far have we come since then? Mm, not really very recent. I'm sorry to disappoint. Um, no, I think there, there's nothing really recent that I've heard. One of the problems of being retired, you get a little bit out of contact with things. But I've Talk with a lot of people and heard their experience, heard of their experiences, and uh, I'm very impressed with what's happening now, and particularly with the reduction in cost to sensible levels of this sort of technology. Dave, can you tell us more about your educational background and how did you end up in academia and working in research? My educational background is slightly odd. What I actually did at university back in the 60s, was philosophy and physics, which didn't seem to have much contact with immersive audio or audio in general. But the thing was, I was at university in London in the 1960s, and I got involved with a lot of interesting people and a lot of interesting groups, and I started doing things like making fuzz boxes and phasers and other bits of kit for groups and also doing psychedelic lighting for groups and uh, exhibitions and things. And that led me by a strange route to working in academia in Cardiff at the University College there 
it's now called um, what South Wales University or something, but it was called the University College Cardiff in those days. And we had an electronic music studio there, which I helped set up. And that really got me into academia. And I just loved academia, the freedom that we had in those days. It wasn't anywhere near as corporate as it is now. So there's a lot more freedom to do things and just do what you want. Also, I was working with people who had relatively limited technical knowledge compared to what I picked up making uh, um, fuzz boxes and other things. And so I could dictate to some extent that what we did, even though I was only technically there helping set things up. You were the experimental officer in the Music Research Centre at University of York. What does that entail exactly? Well, my original title when I moved to the music department at York University was chief technician. And uh, early 80s, there was an interesting coincidence in that some people who joined the new electronics department at York were very interested in music. And they got in contact with uh, my immediate boss at York music department, Richard Orton. And uh, we all ended up talking about what we would actually like to have done as students. And it turned out that what we would have liked to have done was something that was a combination of music and technology, which would enable us to do computer music, recording, all that sort of thing. And we came up with the title of a music technology degree, or more specifically, when we actually got it going, the music technology master's. I was the one that really had the experience in uh, recording because I'd done quite a few CDs by then and in the technology needed. And they wanted me to teach on the course. But the university didn't like the idea of somebody called a technician teaching, at least not academic teaching. You know, you could teach how people how to plug things in, but not actually what plugging things in really meant. So they searched around and they came up with this new title called an experimental officer. An experimental officer was somebody who basically supported doing experiments and also was allowed to teach. And that's what got me the title. Really interesting. What inspired you to get involved with the research in ambisonics and how the former format came about? Okay, well... As I said, I went to my first Audio Engineering Society convention in London in 1975, and there I heard Michael Gerzen speaking for the first time. And it was clear to me virtually instantly that what he was saying was absolutely right, and it was consistent, and it did lots of things that the composers I worked for, the musicians I worked for, would really want for their toolbox of things to do to make sounds interesting. And so I started to get involved in it. Michael Gerson and Peter Felgert published some articles in the much lamented, now defunct Studio Sound magazine, which had very simple circuits which would enable you to work in what's called first order ambisonics. And um, the immediate idea was that we'd at least put some of these things together and see if they did what we really wanted. And they did. And it's really actually quite simple, analog electronics. Now that led us on through various paths to 
getting systems together where we could play back to large audiences and composers to, could compose things. But we really needed to advance the technology to work better for larger audiences. And one of these things which enabled this to happen is working on what's called higher orders. Now, the first order ambisonics that Michael Gerson worked with was absolutely fine for domestic level systems, but really you needed to have more detail captured or constructed in the sound fields to make it work better. Now, Michael had actually published how to do this way back in 1973, but he hadn't used the same sort of notation and structure that he used in the Soundfield microphone system, what's called B format. So we spent some time working out how to actually change from the system that he used originally back in 1973 to something that was completely compatible with the first order system that was out and available commercially. This wasn't a trivial task, um, but by bending our minds around the maths, we managed to make it work. The first Malum uh, Fumar system that came up was a result of one of my former students, Richard Furs, criticising my paper, which I gave at Beijing, or was going to give at Beijing, about the approach I set up. Now, he's a very mathematically minded person. And he basically said, Dave, you can't do that. That's mathematically not good. And so we sat down and figured out how to do it in a proper, consistent manner, at least to, to third order. The particular thing about the first Malum configuration was that we were then limited by the technology we had, which was fixed point digital recorders, 16 or 24-bit, or analog tape machines. And we had to implement a series of measures which kept the levels in particular channels at sensible settings. Not something we do now, and the newer systems don't do it. But we published uh, a full set. We could be here for hours talking about this, but I hope that's least a taster of why the first Malam or Fumar standard, if you like to call it that, came about. I'm also very curious to hear whether or not you still in conversation with Richard. So Richard first is person behind Blue Ripple brand. That's right. Which is currently releasing a whole myriad of amazing tools for audio mixing workflow, particularly for ambisonics. Um, so how's your relationship today? Ah, it's good. I haven't talked to him for a year or so, but I'm really very impressed by the work he's doing and his tools. Um, I tend to get more involved with gardening and such like things these days. But I think if I was going to go back into the field seriously, uh, as opposed to just keeping watching brief on what's going on, I'd go to Richard's tools rather than trying to write my own. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, his tools are absolutely solid and uh, definitely gained very good reputation in the past several years, especially since the reinsurgence in the immersive audio field. Okay, let's switch the gears. Can we talk about some of the advances that you have observed over the years working in the industry from 60s to 70s to 80s and 90s and so on and up until your retirement point? What were the most, I uh, suppose, fundamental changes that uh, we're still enjoying or are affected by? 
Oh, I think that the most fundamental thing is a thing that everybody sees, and that's the coming of the digital era. You've got to remember that when I started playing with uh, audio, it was, was really in my sixth form at school, and I was still building things with valves in those days. Um, in fact, the, the first thing I built, which was really an audio, audio effects unit, was a Dalek voice simulator that was built from a World War II army radio set. Then we went into transistors and most of the stuff I was building in the 60s in London was based purely on transistors, no ICs and certainly no microprocessors. There wasn't the microprocessor in the world then. Uh, I was astounded to think a few months ago that when I was born, there wasn't a transistor in the world. There was only about two computers, literally, uh, and neither of them were anything like as powerful as even the weakest machine that we would use now. So digital is the thing that has really made a change. It is so much easier to control than analog. It is so much better than analog in many ways, not in every way, but in the vast majority of ways, I wouldn't go back to working with analog. Where do you see the implementation of ambisonic sound technology heading in the near future? Well, I think that its implementation on mobile phones is, and particularly with head-tracked audio, is the next big development, and it seems to be already starting. Headphone-based audio has always had problems in terms of externalization of sources and things like that. And head tracking systems really make a huge difference to that. And ambisonics within that kind of system makes the whole manipulation of sound in space, in other words, changing the presentation of the sound field as you move your head, so much easier. What are your thoughts about implementation of ambisonics within the game engine environment? Well, it obviously has uh, huge implications for the gaming audio systems. Um, it's already been implemented, of course, by people like Codemasters, and uh, I think it can only progress. There seems to be a few, quite a few engines starting to appear in the various uh, environments that are out there for coding games, and I can only see that because of the advantages, the inherent advantages, I can only see that improving and increasing over the even quite near future. Having such a deep understanding of ambisonics, I'm wondering if there's anything else that we yet to see that could be extrapolated from this technology, something that might be available due to a more powerful computation capabilities or maybe a more elaborate algorithm development provided by AI perhaps. Basically what I'm trying to understand is whether we hit the ceiling and it just is what it is or there are a number of improvements and number of things that scientists and academics and practitioners can work towards in order to extrapolate even a better version of this currently existing technology. I don't think there's anything big I could easily be wrong about that, of course. It wouldn't be the first time. Uh, but I don't think there's any single big thing. I think it's just the increasing availability of power uh, within 
the mobile devices in particular, but also within um, tablets and laptops and so on, enabling you to do more things. It would be nice, for instance, if you are doing uh, a game in which there's a, a tank rolling across the plane towards you, if all the sound sources that a tank would uh, consist of, tracks, the engine, the gun turret movements, all those sort of things could all be done individually and all automatically change as they do in real life, as they come towards you or move away from you. We can always already do quite a bit of that, but it could be better. The thing is, how far do you need to go? There's a limit to what the human ear can perceive. It's an amazing instrument, but at some point we get the indistinguishable from reality point. Uh, it's a moot point of uh, whether there is an indistinguishable reality point when you are dealing with things which are not real in the sense of never have been real and won't be real until the future or never. But believable, I think, is perhaps a better word. If you get to a fully believable scenario, then do you need to push any further? That's fair enough. Typically, as any audio engineer, that urge to do something, to play with sound, really never does go away. I'm curious, what is that thing for you personally? Do you play an instrument? Do you make music? Or do you read academic papers? How do you satisfy that urge? No, it absolutely doesn't. I think the thing I've really engaged with over the years is helping other people make music. Oh, I did play a bit of guitar once upon a time, but I would say that uh, really the instrument I've played over the years most is the computer. That's been fun, but I think the actually just making things possible for other people has been the real driver behind my continued interest in audio and uh, music over the years. I kind of anticipate a particular answer there, but I'm still going to ask you, what's your favourite project that you've been involved with and why? Oh, gosh, the trouble is I've been involved with so many projects over the years. That is probably the most difficult question you could ask me. I mean, I'll give you a whole bunch of different things. I've recorded in caves under the Yorkshire Dales. I've recorded in the bridge deck, and that means inside the bridge deck of the Humber Bridge. I've walked across the roof of York Minster at three o'clock in the morning to recover a microphone that we'd been using through a recording session. I've just done so many different things, but the two most interesting projects I've done in the last decade is one which is a huge project called The Morning Line, which is now at ZKM in Karlsruhe in Germany. Uh, it's its final resting place. That's the wrong word because it isn't resting, it's working very much. And that's a giant aluminium sculpture. Some of the configurations, uh, I'll explain that in a minute, some of the configurations have been 24 metres long, 12 metres wide and 6 metres high. And they have 40-odd miniature waterproof loudspeakers plus 12 subwoofers, dividing up into what's called three, no, six rooms which are configured to play 3D audio. Not 
unfortunately, ambisonics because the structure is very irregular. It's constructed from lots of different modules of laser-cut aluminium, which can be configured into any number of structures, depending on where it's placed in the world. And this instrument, because that's what it is really, is available for composers to produce their pieces on. Uh, that was, you can look it up by looking up the morning line at ZKM in Karlsruhe. Be careful though, because the morning line is also the name of Channel 4's racing program. And that tends to come up rather a lot when you do a search just for the morning line. The other project, which was really more fun than the morning line, was one called The Singing Ringing Boy, which was designed by a guy called Craig Fear. And basically what it involved was instrumenting a, a boy, something you float in water. Uh, we had wind sensors and tilt sensors and uh, hydrophones and all kinds of different things. We sent all the information from that over an ethernet cable under the sea back to the Falmouth Marine Museum. And in there, there was a 3D ambisonic this time, sound reproduction system. And the data that we got in from the boy was used to steer sounds around in space inside that loudspeaker array. And mostly the sounds moved around were those that the boy itself was producing. Like I said, we had the hydrophones on it. And that was a real fun project. It eventually sank. I didn't actually build the boy itself. I needed electronics. And the marine experts that designed the boy um, and constructed it had forgotten to reheat treat the stainless steel that they welded up. And the joints basically rotted through and it sank, which was rather unfortunate. Well, that's really sad. Well, it's a fascinating project nevertheless. Oh, yes. I had a lot of fun with that one. What's in store for Dave Malham in coming years? Well, what I'm doing a lot at the moment is, um, I have been doing a lot of, is low-energy Bluetooth tracking uh, of people through exhibitions in places like the Hoxton Hall uh, Music Hall in London. And uh, we use Bluetooth beacons to signal to their mobile where they are, and that in turn generates a soundtrack for them. So they can hear people talking within the environment, from recordings, of course, which leads them round the exhibition within this 19th century um, musical, which is really quite exciting. It also does things like controls, lights and pictures and makes a very immersive environment, which is completely tailored to how the person walks around it, the speed they walk and actually where they walk. So it's, I think, a very, very interesting project. You can look up something called a collection of small choices in Hoxton Hall, and you'll hear us and see some more about it. Dave, what piece of advice would you give to someone who wants to enter industry today? And I guess you'll be speaking from, you know, the height and the wealth of decades of experience working in industry and academia and your nature of willing to help other people and younger generation who coming on board these days what can you share from your experience i think there's a couple of things i think the most important thing is 
get lucky. I got lucky. But don't forget that to get lucky, you have to be prepared. So go out, help people doing audio stuff, either recording, uh, you know, maybe there's some local groups or groups that you are friends with who need to have a demo recording done, or maybe they need some PA help or anything like that. Just do as much as you can for other people. And that brings you up a nice portfolio. And that's what I mean by be prepared and then be lucky. And the other thing I would advise people, it's one of the best things I did in audio, and that's join the Audio Engineering Society. I did that in 1975 and I've never once regretted it. In fact, I've always really, really enjoyed myself. That's a brilliant piece of advice or two. <laughs> Dave Malam, it's been an absolute privilege. Thank you very much. It's been fun, interesting. Thank you. Take care. And you. Bye. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest Dave Mallon. This episode was produced by Abigail Bertram, Gillian Duffy, Oliver Cadell, Felix Thompson, and included music by Nobs Bergamo. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Would you like to hear from a particular person, company, or a certain topic area in the XR industry? Please get in touch at podcast at 1618digital.com, telling us what you want to hear on the Immersive Audio Podcast. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.